And if you would, turn with me to the book of James, chapter 1. We're going to finish up uh, this first kind of section in James, chapter 1 this week. And like we did last week, I want us to read the entire passage together because it, it's all kind of one unit. And so if you would, follow along with me. I'm going to start reading James chapter 1, verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, as we dig into this passage this morning, I pray that you'd give us ears to hear, that you'd open our hearts and our minds to receive this word from you. And God, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be acceptable in your sight. Oh God, my rock and my redeemer. It's in the precious name of Jesus I pray. Amen. I have great admiration for pastors and teachers who preach more than once on a Sunday. It's tough on the voice. I was, I think, last week, um, I went home with a sore throat and had a sore throat for two days before it went away. Um, I think part of that was probably because I belted out the last song at the end of the day um, because I love it, and we're going to sing it again today. Anyway, I digress. Um, James chapter 1. We're going to start... In verse 12 today, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. So the last week and this week we're gonna, we've we talked about and we'll t- continue talking about navigating the trials of life. Um, this verse is kind of a summary statement from the first 11 verses and it's the result of navigating the trials of life well. The verse reads much like the Beatitudes 
in Matthew chapter 5. And again, this is a connection between the book of James uh, and the Sermon on the Mount. James seems to pull very heavily at times from the Sermon on the Mount. And it's, it's a conclusion and a result of what James has just said. Um, and I could, have, I could have said this last week in the sermon. I could have tagged it on to the end. But um, I wanted to include it this week because it stands in sharp contrast to what James is about to say next. I made reference at the end of the service last week to this verse um, in connection with our friend Gina and her battle with cancer. Um, she passed away early Monday morning, um, which, you know, we have grieved this week. But as, as we will see in just a minute, the word blessed here means to be well spoken of, receiving God's favor. And over the course of this week, I have watched hundreds of people post to her Facebook wall comments about the impact that she had on their lives. Uh, just a, an incredible testimony of God's grace on her life as she battled cancer for years. Um, and the way that she walked through it, the way that she carried herself through it, choosing joy in the midst of difficult circumstances and testimony after testimony after testimony from people of saying, you pointed me to Jesus through your suffering. Uh, it was just such a powerful tribute to a, a life well lived. Um, so the person who remains steadfast under trial is blessed. Under trial here means to be in a state of trial in which God brings his people through adversity and affliction in order to encourage and prove their faith and confidence in him. This goes back to verses 3 and 4 where James tells us that the testing of our faith produces steadfastness and we must let steadfastness have its full effect so that we can be perfect. Now remember what I've said before, that this word perfect doesn't mean perfect in terms of sinless. It means perfect in terms of maturity. Maturity in Christ is the goal here. This is James's goal for the people that he's writing to, to become mature followers of Jesus. So the person who has let steadfastness have its full effect, who has stood up under trial, whose faith has proved to be genuine, is blessed. They are well spoken of and they receive God's favor. James says that when we have stood the test, we will receive the crown of life. To stand the test means to be tried and proved, also approved and therefore genuine. The phrase crown of life, I think probably is best translated as the crown that is life um, because it is, it is a reward. It's not an actual crown, um, but the reward is life, eternal life. And it's a promise. It's absolute I've got a number of verses. I think it's important to, you know, as Doke tells us, Scripture, um, Scripture, just drew a blank. Interpret Scripture. Thank you very much. That was a test. I was just testing you. <laughs> and so I, I want to read these passages that just affirm what James is saying here. John 3.16, very famous, all familiar with it. But God says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. John three thirty six. Whoever believes in the Son of Man has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. John five twenty four. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Romans six twenty two and twenty three. 
But now that you have been set free from sin and, and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. 1 Timothy 6, verse 12. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Titus 1, 1 through 3. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. 1 John two twenty four and 25. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. One more, 1 John five thirteen. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. James talks about the blessing in the midst of suffering and the crown of life that comes at the end. Um, turn with me quickly over to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2 um, are letters to the churches. The second one in chapter 2 is the letter to the church in Smyrna. And this is what it says here. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Similar type situation, I, th- I believe that James is writing to, to the people um, who have been scattered. The letter in the, to Smyrna says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but it says, but you are rich. And James, last week, has said, has, has said the same thing to the people that he's writing to. You may be in poverty, but you are rich. You are blessed beyond compare um, through Jesus. And so you just see that, that connection that I wanted to make. The crown of life that comes to those who stand up under trial. Now James shifts gears here and begins to talk about the other side of trials. We've seen how when rightly responded to, the trials of life bring steadfastness, which results in maturity in Christ. However, when the trials of life are wrongly responded to, temptation can result. The trials that I face in life are not the most dangerous thing for me. The greatest danger to me is not the wrong being done to me, but the wrong that may be done by me. The real threat is that when wrong is done to me, I may be tempted to fall into sin myself. I mentioned this too last week in reference to Gina and a quote from her. She said that my cancer is not my biggest problem in life. Sin is my greatest problem in life. 
And that is true for you and that is true for me. The trials and the sufferings that we go through are not our biggest problem in life. Our, pro- our biggest problem in life is sin. And what James is saying here is that when I'm tempted, when, when, when I allow my trials to become a temptation, I can fall into sin myself. That's the bigger issue here, not the trial that we're going through. The word that James uses here for tempted shares the same common root as the word that's used in verses 2 and verse 12 for trials. Now this doesn't mean that trials and temptations are identical and interchangeable concepts, but it does have implications for us understanding the text. James is continuing the line of thought about the spiritual dynamics of the trials that we face. The temptations that James has in mind when he's writing are those that come in the context of his reader's trials. So let's just remind ourselves, we know that those that he's writing to are suffering under persecution and that they're also likely dealing with poverty due to the persecution that they're under. So for them, the temptation to harbor hatred or to take revenge towards those who have persecuted them could be, could be a very real thing. There could very well be also the temptation to be covetous and jealous in their economic hardship. Now, society's values today may lead us to think of temptation only in terms of our appetite for food or sexual pleasure. But James here wants us to apply the text to our temptations toward hatred and greed and envy. James has already told us that God desires the trials to become a test that produces steadfastness that leads to to maturity the alternative possibility is now considered that the trial may become a temptation for sin leading to death so we've got these two alternatives one which is clearly not god's will for the christian as we'll see in verse 13 in a moment so you got these two alternatives the first one being a trial that leads to testing which leads to steadfastness which leads to maturity in christ that's the goal The other alternative is trials that lead to temptation that lead to sin, which leads to death. So these are this kind of what we're going to look at today. um, The second half, the second thing, the first one we talked more about last week. So what happens when temptation strikes? James one verse thirteen says, "Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God." For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. God's nature is that he cannot be tempted by evil. Okay, And I think James is using this as a reminder to us of the holiness of God. His moral purity is absolute and undefiled. His holiness is so pure that it's often described in terms of its incredible beauty. We see this in the Psalms. Psalm 27.4 says, One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Psalm 29, verses 1 and 2. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of of holiness. Psalm 99, 2 and 3 says, The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy 
is he. There is not the smallest trace of evil in God's nature. 1 John 1.5 says, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. This is why God's holiness put despair into Isaiah's heart in Isaiah chapter 6. And I want to read this to us because I think it's, it's an incredible perspective of God's holiness and awesomeness and the perspective that we should have. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. This sense of God's awesome holiness and purity is is so strong throughout both the Old and the New Testament. And so James's statement here is emphatic. God cannot be tempted, and he tempts, he himself tempts no one. Not only is God holy, but he also requires holiness from us. His will for us is always towards holiness, never towards evil. We all experience temptation. So what then is the origin of temptation? Temptation comes from our enemy, the devil. Satan is the one who tempts us. He tempted Eve in the garden. He tempted Jesus in the wilderness. And he tempts us in order to try and trip us up. But one thing that we often do is we like to play the blame game. We saw this in the Garden of Eden. You know, Eve blaming the serpent. Adam blaming Eve. Um, We must not play the blame game. And the reason why comes in verse 14, which again is another emphatic statement by James. It says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. This is a call for us to take responsibility for our own lives and to deal with our own sinful motives. Have you ever blamed your parents or other people for what you have become? Or have you ever blamed circumstances for what you've done? People and circumstances in our lives, they do affect us. However, one of the most significant ways that we resist the maturing process in our lives is by blaming factors outside of ourselves for our sin. Remember, God does test us, but he does not and cannot tempt us. We turn occasions of testing into temptation. One commentator that I read this week says this about temptation. He said, A temptation is an opportunity to accomplish a good thing in a bad way out of the will of God. Is it wrong, he asks, to want to pass an examination? Of course not. But if you cheat to pass it, then you have sinned. The temptation to cheat is an opportunity to accomplish a good thing 
passing the examination in a bad way. It's not wrong to eat, but if you consider stealing the food that you're going to eat, you're tempting yourself. So I want us to consider three things this morning in light of all this. First, I want, to, I want us to consider God's judgment. We are tempted to sin by our own evil desires. We're going to come back to this in a minute, but I want us to first look at the end result. Let's consider God's judgment here. What is the end result? Look at the last verse, the last word, I'm sorry, in verse 15. What is it? Death. The result of temptation that leads to sin is death. Now, we think of sin as a single act, oftentimes. But God sees it as a process. And so I want us to look at this process and talk about uh, what it is. Verse 14 says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. The process of sin starts with desire. I think it's important to note here that the normal desires that we have in life were given to us by God, and in and of themselves are not sinful. Think about this. Without these desires, we wouldn't function. Okay, If we didn't feel hunger and thirst... We wouldn't eat and drink, and we would die. If um, fatigue leads to a desire to rest, if we don't rest, we'll wear out. Sex is a normal desire. The human race wouldn't continue without it. But it's when we want to satisfy these desires outside of the will of God that we get into trouble. Eating is normal. Gluttony is sin. Sleep is normal. Laziness is sin. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 13, 4 says, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. The the desires that we have, which are God-given, must be our servants and not our masters. But it takes our eyes being fixed on Jesus to accomplish this. The second step in the process of sin is deception. No temptation, think about this, no temptation appears as a temptation. If you'll think back in your life, times where you've been tempted, does the temptation appear as a temptation? It's always something that is alluring and draws us in. And so James here in these verses uses two illustrations to explain this. He talks about being lured and enticed. To be lured carries with it the idea of baiting a trap. A hunter would bait a trap for an animal in the woods. And enticed is the Greek, uh, comes from the Greek word that means to bait a hook. So you have the hunter and the fisherman using bait to attract and catch their prey. Now, No animal that I know of is deliberately going to step into a trap. And a fish is not going to knowingly bite a bare hook. The idea behind the bait is to hide the trap and to hide the hook. So temptation always carries some bait. 
that will appeal to our desires. And so if we are being mastered by our desires, our eyes are not on Jesus, then we fall for the bait. Think about it. Genesis 13, Lot and Abraham are in a position where their families are so big, they're starting to fight one another because they're frustrated without the the space of the land is limited. And so Abraham tells Lot, we need to divide here. You go, if you go left, I'll go right. If you go right, I'll go left. And so they pick the places and he gives, Abraham gives Lot the opportunity to pick first. And Lot looks out and he sees the well-watered plains of Jordan. And he thought, that's where I want to plant my family. That's where the crops are going to grow. That's where um, everything is going to be great. So Lot chooses that area. Now, I don't think that he would have chosen to settle there if he could have seen the future and the trouble that was going to come by dwelling near Sodom. When David caught sight of Bathsheba from his rooftop, he never would have committed adultery had he seen the tragic consequences that would result. The bait keeps us from seeing the consequences of sin. When Jesus was tempted by Satan in the wilderness, he always dealt with it on the basis of God's word. He saw the bait that Satan was dangling in front of him for what it really was. He saw the trap. And I think this serves to us as a reminder yet again for our need to be in God's word. When we know his word, it helps us to detect the bait. Thirdly, in the process of sin is disobedience. James changes pictures here from hunting and fishing to the birth of a baby. The urge to satisfy our desires outside of God's will leads, us, uh, leads to us falling for the deception. And whether we feel it or not, we're hooked and we're trapped and the baby is born. Christian living is a matter of the will, not our feelings. We talked about this last week. Living with our will submitted to the will of the Father is a must for the believer. If I say things like, I don't want to read the Bible, or I don't feel like reading the Bible, or if I say, I don't feel like going to church, it's revealing my lack of maturity. A sign of maturity as we grow up is that we will act because it is right, no matter how we feel. This is the reason why immature Christians fall so easily into temptation. They let their feelings make their decisions for them. The more we exercise submitting our will to the will of the Father, the more He will take control of our life. Philippians 2.13 says, For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Disobedience then leads to death. And this is the final step in the process of sin. Desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. If only we would believe God's word and see this final tragedy, it would encourage us not to yield to temptation. Now, this is a, this is a, a big point that James makes here. And I think this is... It's vivid imagery that he's using, and it's designed to stop sinners in their tracks. 
seeing that death is the natural and terrible end of a life of sin. Paul said in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. God himself gave Adam the same assurance about the forbidden fruit. In Genesis 2.17, he said, when you eat of it, you will surely die. James is warning Christians to see the danger of sin and even more so to so detest sin that they deny the evil desire that sin comes from. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. The words of Jesus that I believe the entire book of James is founded upon. James is not telling genuine Christians that they may lose their salvation. He is warning that genuine salvation comes by repentance and faith. This extreme warning is simply showing how seriously James takes the lordship of Christ. And I just want to pause here for a second because I think this is vital in our day and age, in the life of the church. We are very comfortable, we're very happy to declare Jesus as Savior. But there is great hesitancy in declaring Jesus as Lord of our lives. We wrestle with that, if we're honest, because we like control. We want to be in charge. But the fact of the matter is, if Jesus is not both Savior and Lord of your life, then I would suggest that he is neither. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. These are Jesus' words to us, and I think James is simply trying to hammer this home. This letter is written to his beloved brothers. This is not a random letter sent, sent to people that he does not know. These are people in all likelihood who were part of his church in Jerusalem who have scattered because of persecution. He loves them. He cares about them. He is concerned for them and he wants them, desperately desires for them to be wholehearted, devoted followers of Jesus. He expects that true believers will not go on giving themselves to sin. James's intention is that we should take the holiness of God seriously, realize the extreme danger in a life of sin, and turn from sin to follow Christ. Don't be deceived, are his next words. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Again, that beloved brother shows up. It just expresses his concern and his care for the people that he's writing to. This is a command, again, 50 commands in the book of James. It's only five short chapters. Do not be deceived. Deception leads to disobedience, which leads to death. I think this is a hinge verse here that points us both to the verses before it and the verses that follow. I think James is saying, don't be deceived about where temptation comes from. And don't be deceived about where every good gift comes from either. 
And so I come back to what I mentioned earlier. The greatest danger to James's persecuted readers and to us today is not the wrong being done to them or to us, but the wrong that they or we might do. Because trials that lead to temptation can lead to sin, which will lead to death. But there's an alternative. When the trial becomes a test and we allow the test to let steadfastness finish its work in us, then we become mature and complete, lacking in nothing. James is going to come back to that here in the last two verses. Look at them with me, verse 17 and 18. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So we've considered God's judgment. Next, I want us to consider God's goodness. One of the tricks of the devil is to try to convince us that our father is holding out on us or that he doesn't really love us and care for us. We see this clearly in the Garden of Eden again when Satan approached Eve. He suggested to her that if God really loved her, he'd allow her to eat the fruit from any tree in the garden. Maybe you've experienced this in your own life too, where you feel like God's holding out on you. He doesn't really love you, doesn't really care about you. But we've already talked about God's holiness and that there is no darkness in him. He is all good. He is all good all the time. There is no evil in him. So since God is good, we do not need any other person to meet our needs. The goodness of God is a great barrier against yielding to temptation when we focus on it, when we choose to see it. It is a great barrier against yielding to temptation. God gives us good gifts. It's so important that we recognize God as the provider of blessings. James is passionate about this because he wants his suffering readers to be able to apply it to their trials. They need to believe the fundamental truth that in the midst of trials, God has good gifts for them. Moses warned Israel not to forget God's goodness when they began to enjoy the blessings of the promised land. This is what he said to them in Deuteronomy 6. He said, and when, your, when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give you, with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, and when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery." It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. We read those words from Moses and then we look forward several chapters and books. We see that the Israelites didn't do very well with this. 
And quite frankly, we probably don't do too, very, too well with it either sometimes. We forget the goodness of God. We forget how good and faithful he's been to us in the past. In the midst of trial and suffering, we lose perspective sometimes. We take our eyes off of Jesus. We forget the good things that he has done for us. And that was the case of the Israelites. As we're reading in Joshua now, they, they made their way into the land. They, came, they were delivered by God from slavery in Egypt. He provided them in miraculous ways in the wilderness. And then he led them into the promised land where they conquered the land. They divided it up. They moved into cities that they didn't build. They moved into houses that were filled with things that they didn't put in it. They ate the fruit of vines and plants that they didn't plant. And then years down the road, it seems that they forget it all. They forget the goodness of God. James says that every good gift comes from God. He also says that God gives constantly. A couple of things here. Coming down, James says that good gifts come down from the Father. Coming down is a present participle, meaning that he gives constantly. Even when we don't see them, even when we don't recognize them, them, he is giving us gifts. He is providing for our needs. He is giving us what we need. Secondly, God's gifts to us are coming down, which means what? I think it means we should look up. We should stop looking down at the bait that Satan is trying to trap us with and instead look up. John Bunyan said this, he said, temptation provokes me to look upward to God. And remember the words of Jehoshaphat that we talked about last week. I don't know what to do, but my eyes are fixed on you. That was his cry. That should be the cry of our hearts when we're stuck in situations where we don't know what to do. Throw your hands up. Tell God, I don't know what to do, but my eyes are fixed on you. God does not change. There are, there are no shadows with the Father of lights. It's impossible, in fact, for God to change. He can't change for the worse because he is holy. He can't change for the better because he's already perfect. He is the unchanging God. He is the unchanging God who gives good gifts. God's gifts are always better than Satan's bargains. Satan may bait you with what looks like a gift, but he never gives any gifts because you end up paying for them dearly. The next time that you're tempted, meditate on the goodness of God in your life. He is good all the time. Of his own will, James goes on to say, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. As we come to our last point today, we've looked at God's judgment, we've looked at God's goodness, and I want to finish by looking at God's divine nature within us. 
James used birth as a picture of desire leading to sin and to death. And here in verse 18, he uses the same picture to explain how we can enjoy victory over temptation and sin. John tells us in 1 John 3, 9, he says, No one is born of God. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. This birth that James is talking about here is divine. It is the work of God. This birth is gracious. We didn't earn it. We don't deserve it. The new birth is the work of God and God alone. The Spirit of God, James says, uses the Word of God to bring about the miracle of new birth. Since the Word of God is living and powerful, as Hebrews tells us, it can generate life in the heart of the sinner who trusts Christ, and that life is God's life. As Christians, we have new life in Christ. As Christians who have new life in Christ, we share God's nature. It is this experience of new birth that helps us overcome temptation. If we let the old nature take over, we will fail. But if we yield to the new nature, submitting to the lordship of Christ in our lives, we will succeed because our new nature comes from Christ and he is the overcomer. So as, as we wrap up today, I just, I think it is so critical and so important that we see how crucial our response to trials is. Two different ways. When those of us who are followers of Jesus meet trials, we can respond in two ways. The first is that we can respond by letting our desires master us, making the trial an occasion for temptation, which can lead to sin. The good news about temptation is that we have an amazing promise from God concerning it. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. That means if you're facing something, you can rest assured you're not the first. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. God provides a way out. His name is Jesus. And when our eyes are fixed on him and he is Lord of our lives, giving in to temptation is much less likely. Now, I, I said this in the first service, and I need to say this too, that temptation is not always necessarily linked to trials. James is specifically writing to people who are under intense persecution, suffering trials, and he is warning them against the temptation to fall into sin in the midst of their trials. Temptation can come at us at any point in time, and oftentimes it comes because we put ourselves in stupid situations. The point I I just want to make there is that regardless of whether you're in the middle of a trial and the, the, the temptation is there or you're just 
in a bad spot and you're facing temptation. God is faithful. He will not let you tempted, be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape. The other alternative is to respond out of faith with joy that we are truly blessed. This response makes the trial an opportunity for testing instead of temptation, and the testing produces steadfastness that causes us to become more like God, mature and complete in Christ. So that's James's warning, if you will, to us. His word of challenge to us. That when we face trials, and we will face trials, he's already told us that. It's not a matter of if, it is when. What is our response to the trials of our lives going to be? Will we choose joy? Will we count it all joy when we face trials of many kinds? He says that the testing of our faith produces steadfastness. Will we let that steadfastness have its full effect so that we can be mature and complete, lacking in nothing? Or will we choose in our suffering and in our trials to perhaps become bitter, angry towards the people who might be afflicting us, perhaps angry towards God, placing blame on Him? What will our choice be? How will we face our trials this week? I pray that when trials come that I can face trials like my friend Gina who in the midst of suffering cancer for years chose joy because she knew as she would always say the best is yet to come. And this week the best came for Gina as she stepped into the presence of her Savior. And I look forward to that day when I can step into eternity and meet my Savior face to face. And I have no doubt that he looked at Gina and he said, well done, good and faithful servant. And those are the words that I want to hear and those are the words that I want all of us to hear when this life comes to an end and we meet our Savior face to face. Let's pray together.